Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Early reports indicate that 250 people went on hunger strike at the Kokorin State Prison in California. The facility is on lockdown and no list of demands has leaked out yet. Up next, we read a statement by Keith Lamar, also known as Bamani Shakur, who just had his execution date set. In his statement, Keith wrangles with the violent death the state of Ohio is seeking to inflict on him, but also with the vast challenges and ruptures that we as a whole are facing in the 21st century. Hello, everybody. I'm sorry that it has taken me so long to respond and say something about the recent news regarding my pending execution date. To be perfectly honest, I've been floundering a bit, trying to find my footing. I wrote a response to the AP's announcement which I thought was a bit premature on their part. I mean, the actual date is the news, not the state's request. But it is what it is, I suppose. Of course, I've had quite a few years to get used to the idea of my eventual demise, eventual no matter how it happens, and so the news came as no real surprise. I try not to spend my time lying to myself. I've been on death row for 23 years now, and so things were always tending to this. Still, waiting and actually arriving are two different things. Now that I am here, so to speak, I thought it best to pause and take a peek inside myself, see what it all means. And what does it all mean? Well, for most of us, it means what it has always meant. The strong do what they want, and the weak suffer what they must. So yeah, I've been doing my share of suffering these past few weeks, going through bouts of extreme anger and, I'm embarrassed to say, wallowing in deep sadness. But why sadness when I've been caught in this trap for 30 years? I mean, I really and truly hate this place. The horrible food, the constant clanging of the keys, and the sheer senselessness of it all. And yet, the thing that truly saddens me and upsets me in equal part is the thought that on some as-yet-undetermined date, These people will force me into a gurney and call it justice. And it's this, the whole calling it justice thing, that opens my eyes each morning. I can't allow them to do that, to carry this thing out as if it's legit. I mean, kill me if you must, but call it what it is, murder. So you see, I'm caught up in the throes of some very powerful emotions at the moment, trying to marshal my strength and focus, in order that I might be able to rise to the occasion. It's going to take me a little time to gather my force, to get my feet under me, and I ask that you all be patient with me and not doubt the depths of my convictions. I have my finger on the thread of something very powerful, which, if properly pursued, will show the system for what it is. Something similar to what Christine Blasey Ford did. She really made a mockery out of them, made them all look like the petty, stupid little men that they are. I intend to do the same thing. I don't know how closely you are all following the whole hearing debacle, 
but I watched it with keen interest, looking for parallels and matching metaphors to the larger context. You see, to me, the whole system of capitalism, of which patriarchy is but an extension, is predicated on rape, on holding people down and f***ing them. So in a very real sense, we are all Christine Blasey Ford, and must do what she did, speak truth to power. To me, and I believe this was true for Mrs. Ford as well, winning was never about preventing Kavanaugh from being confirmed, no more than my winning is about preventing these people from killing me. That, after all, was never within her power to do. Nevertheless, what she did, and the price she paid for doing it, was instructive. She set herself free, and that was such a beautiful thing to see. She spoke about how, after the incident happened, she too found herself floundering, trying to find her way forward. She spoke about how her grades suffered, and how her relationships, even up to the present, were affected by the memory of what she went through. But she also, over the years, has become an accomplished woman, and has somehow managed to hold it together in spite of what was going on inside of her. And then she sees the name Kavanaugh on the short list to sit on the highest court of the land, and the grown woman in her saw it as an opportunity to release the young person that she was from the prison that she's been trapped in all these years. She probably didn't know that she would have to do it on nationwide television in front of the whole world. But when she found out that she would be the context, she didn't shy away, and that too was beautiful to see. At the same time, she showed us that the Supreme Court, the same court that decreed black people were three-fifths human beings, is a supreme joke. This whole system is a sham, and we have to come to see it for what it is. There's nothing behind the curtain, or under the skirt, if we're talking about the Lady of Liberty. It's just a group of old white men pulling levers. Until we see that, until we understand that the only way home, freedom, is through confrontation or facing our fears, we will never discover who we are. And maybe it's true to say, as some have said, that it's too late to save ourselves. Maybe it's the destiny of mankind to destroy itself, in which case, this civilization will perish like all the others. However, in the meantime, it is the job of thinking people not to be on the side of the executioners. So yeah, I intend to do my job. I just need a little time to think, and I hope that you all will join me in this thinking process, and that we together can figure out a way forward. To the bitter end, Bamani Shakur. While the U.S. government remains shut down after four weeks, leading to widespread neglect of federal prisoners, France is approaching three months of an open insurgency. Hundreds of thousands of people have donned yellow vests and are blockading highways and roundabouts, as well as rioting in towns and cities across the country each Saturday in order to resist the collapse of living standards and the shifting of costs onto the poor. In order to get a first-hand perspective on the movement, we interviewed Chantal, an American arrested during a demonstration in Paris last month. In addition to touching on aspects of the Yellow Vest movement, she tells the story of her time in an immigrant detention center there, echoing stories of abuse at U.S. detention centers, which are themselves being shaken by overcrowding and collective struggles. Here she is. I'm Chantal. I arrived in Paris the night of December 7th and spent the day on December 8th in Paris, sort of navigating the city amidst really large demonstrations that spread throughout the city, mostly in the sort of main cultural district 
where you'll find many museums and monuments where there are large clashes with the police, many different kinds of either impromptu or planned meetups of gilets jaunes. We spent most of the day sort of walking around trying to find large groups of people, which was increasingly difficult because of the massive police deployment that day, where tens of thousands of police were deployed in full gear, um, full capacity, uh, with many police stationed to control people coming in from all throughout France, and ostensibly internationally, to stop and potentially detain people who had any sort of objects that, uh, such as a gilet jaune or a yellow vest, um, protective goggles, masks, things like this. So it was very difficult. Um, it's also already a very difficult area to navigate. So it was a very chaotic day and that you could be sort of evading this illegal detainment, illegal controlling by the police to stumble upon a large group of people just simply gathered, maybe um, confronting the police, building barricades, throwing rocks, different forms of property destruction, looting. As, as clashes would intensify, many people would run, disperse, and you know you would be completely disoriented, maybe separated from the group, and you would very easily stumble upon another clash or completely you know uncontrolled group of people protesting in one form or another. Um, so we spent most of the day like this, and um, towards the end of the day, as the sun goes down around 5.30 or 6, many people start to leave. And this this was, you know, I think the third Saturday of manifestations in Paris. And so we already knew up this, to this point that it's typical for around that time, people start to leave the city to return to their homes all throughout France and the countryside, etc. So around 5.36, you already know that it's going to be less populated things are winding down. It's a good time to also leave. So it was around that time when we were sort of in the aftermath of really high intensity destruction and looting. And it was clear that we should um, disperse. We maybe made that decision, you know, five seconds too late as we started to walk away and turned around to see multiple police vehicles driving over barricades and um, into the crowd where they followed up. So you know, a large running, when I say we, it's really like a very kind of sparse yet large group of people running from police vehicles, running into the crowd. And the cars followed a group of protesters down a smaller street off of Rue d'Italienne. And police jumped out of the cars, started snatching people. I was one of those people. I was snatched from behind, batoned, um, slammed to the ground, had my face dragged across the pavement, and sort of was held on the ground by multiple police officers where I was zip-tied, lifted up. And as soon as I was lifted up, my I was wearing a like a protective construction mask and some goggles due to large amounts of tear gas um, and oftentimes tear gas canisters being intentionally shot at protesters in the face and genitals, etc. So protective equipment was very much necessary to be in that area of Paris at all. It was very cold that day. Um, I, I was wearing a, a black jacket with a hood and gloves. And as soon as you know these materials started to come off of my face, the cops were very became aware that I was a woman, which was the first sort of shocking moment for them. 
I immediately asked for a doctor and I said I had nothing to declare, which was equally shocking, partially because of my exhaustion and my accent. The police asked if I was drunk. <laughs> And uh, I said, no, you know, I'm, I'm American, which, which really began, began this cycle of um, just complete confusion by all law enforcement that I um, encountered. I was detained in a, in a cop car um, for about maybe 20 or 30 minutes with one young police officer who was really, you know, sort of asking me, you know, how did you how did you find yourself in this situation? Which was really honestly um, at a loss of, of this very bizarre situation. And and then, you know, even more kind of baffled that I had my passport in my pocket to give them and that I really didn't have much to say to them. Except, you know, I did ask them the same question of how they found themselves in this situation as well. Later on, I was made aware that about 20 or 30 other people were also arrested at the same time as me in the same area, although I did not see any of them and I, I was not transported with them. So I arrived at the station called Garda Vue, which is basically a 24-hour like detainment and was, was completely separated from any other uh, person who was arrested, mostly kind of waiting on a bench in a hallway. And then I was processed with my fingerprints and my DNA, was questioned, um, you know, attempted to be questioned. The, the translation process is either kind of like nothing or um and, and none of it seems like none of the no law enforcement in france seems to speak english or any other language to that effect but the the translation process is kind of like you, maybe you're given a, a piece of paper in french that you that says your rights that you sign and maybe you get on the phone with with someone who will read that to you in english um so uh I, you know i was asked if i wanted my family or the consulate to be called but i was not allowed to have access to my phone or i also was not allowed to call someone on my own behalf and so i was placed in a cell and guard seems to be pretty notorious for being kind of like a a punishment in itself and its sort of like severity i think in the u.s it would be equivalent to like a junk tank where it's it's very sort of like dungeon-like you're in a small cell with like blood and feces on the wall and like crazy scribbles and you know you're sort of deprived water and I was not given food and was sort of held without much understanding of why or for how long. Uh, I stayed in a cell by myself um, because I was seemingly the only woman in that guard of and was in a cell by myself with a small window where I watched throughout the night many people get brought in the majority of whom were young men of color uh, with the exception of a white man in his maybe 30s who was chained to a bench in the hallway all night I, I guess due to like overcrowding who was sort of appealing to the cops over and over again you know like does he look like a rioter? You know, he's a worker. He works every day. Why is he being chained to a bench? You know, and like, what's going to happen to him? So I sort of like came in and out of, of, of sleeping. I was arrested at about 5.40 p.m. And at some point in the morning, I, was, I saw a doctor who cleaned all the blood off of my face and again was just as bewildered and was trying to figure out why I had been there. About two hours later, I met with my first court-appointed lawyer who talked me through the set of questioning that I was going to go through with the police, helped me understand what kind of questions and the best way to answer. Soon after that, I was questioned and 
it was actually very relaxed. It's funny, um, you know, you kind of like you're in your cell and then you're kind of carted through a hallway up a spiral staircase and it's like a completely different world on the other floor where maybe like two floors up where it's like very modern police offices. The night I was arrested, the police were actually in their offices like drinking wine and drinking like sparkling water and like having snacks and I don't know, relaxing after this like large crisis that they were enduring, right? Um, <laughs> and... there's like all these like movie posters like superhero action movie posters like Rambo and Wonder Woman the the first police man who sort of did my intake had this like Winston Churchill shrine behind his desk and like a quote and everyone has photos of their families etc maybe some like medals from different martial arts competitions things like this this set of questioning you know maybe around like two or three p.m. the next day was actually very relaxed in some ways where I felt that this the police officer was sort of understanding of, of my narrative of, quite frankly, everything cultural was closed in Paris that day. And so if a tourist is to be there, uh, the Gilets Jaunes movement truly was the only and biggest and, you know, most interesting cultural event that day. And, you know, it was kind of like wrong place, wrong time. And we discussed the fact that I did, in fact, have a valid passport, a Schengen zone travel visa as an American, and I had a plane ticket for the next morning. So if I were to be let out after the normal 24 hours, I could very easily, and I had full intentions of getting on my flight and returning to the United States. So I would say this interview went sort of well. I I even, um, with, with, with advising from my lawyer, but also with, you know, knowledge of my own phone, I even opened up my phone and showed the police officer photographs of different tourist activities that I had done, you know, and, you know, to, to, mostly to show that I had, in fact, no footage or photographs of, of, of you know, rioting or, or things being broken um, or anything that would be concerning. My phone was being kept not with evidence, but with my items, like my clothes and things that I've been taking away. And the evidence that was, you know, photographed and shown to me repeatedly was, you know, my, my, my vest, the, the mask, the goggles, and the gloves sort of, like, arranged in this, like, figure of a person. Um, and I was, I definitely was asked a lot many questions about the fact that I was wearing all black, that, you know, like, who had given me these items, who I had been staying with, had I known about the Julie Jones movement before I came to France, was it being reported on in the United States, are people in the United States talking about it, sort of, like, murmurs of being, like, am I ultra-leftist, like, what is my history in France, things, things of this nature, to which I, I had very little responses to. After this questioning, I was basically told that, you know, the police commissioner would, and the prosecutor would sort of, like, think about it, and I would know and my 24 hours was o- was over you know at, at 5 40 so at 5 40 um i would know so i went back in my cell and then um later on i was brought back up and the original police officer that you know had first sort of questioned me the night before told me that i was being charged with essentially premeditated participation in a riot to cause violence and destruction and resisting arrest which in french is called rebellion and um so basically these are my charges i would be transferred to the courthouse jail where i would spend the night and in the morning i would meet with a prosecutor who would basically either let me off with some kind of warning or explain to me the charges i was going to face and i would go to prison uh awaiting trial and then you know likely go, go to prison for a few years or something like this yeah so 
Yeah, so I went back to my cell and kind of had accepted this and was sort of like waiting it out um, and felt I had an honest understanding of my story and my trajectory. I ended up falling asleep in my cell and I was woken up and you know, you're kind of like woken up every couple hours to get searched and things like this. I I was woken up around midnight, I would say. And so about six hours over the legal 24 hour detainment in Gardaview and was handcuffed, put in a police car and transferred. We ended up driving for about an hour and a half or two hours. The police had audibly gotten lost, but um, we were were driving very far outside of the city without any explanation to me. So I didn't know where I was going. Um, And so we arrive I, because of how lost the police that were transferring me were, I already began to feel like something out of the ordinary was happening because this was not like a normal transport that they are used to at Gardaview, apparently. I, so I arrived at an immigration retention center to also the confusion of like the overnight shift cops at the retention center. You know, they were very kind of shocked, I think, to see how... Um, like injured I was, like my, my face being cut up, um, the fact that I was in cuffs, the fact that I was like, like kind of didn't have any, any items with me, you know, uh, was transferred in the middle of the night and freezing cold, like wearing, just, just wearing like the minimum clothing, you know, and so these, these police officers are asking like, what, is she violent? Like what's going on? You know? And so I was, I was uncuffed. I, I was, I was, essentially read my rights again with, with a phone translator and I was, I was very confused like I, I tried to ask the translator you know like can you explain to me can you ask the, the the police and explain to me exactly like what my situation is and that you know wasn't something that they could do for me so I just kind of yeah went with it I got some of my things back I got um my, you know, my shoelaces back I got they gave me some money they gave like for my wallet they gave me my um, jewelry bag they gave me like these items not, and it was, I was very confusing I was issued an identification card and then I was um th- they asked me if I had eaten uh, no and so I was given some some bread and some water some chips and I sat eating <clears throat> in the what's called a fui it's like it kind of like translates to I don't know like it can it can it can translate to like search or something so it's like where where you are and taken and searched and given, you know, you, they take your things or you get them back when you're leaving, things like this. Thing. Um, so I was in that area for a while. And honestly, these three or four night shift cops were very playful, were very, you know, in like kind of positive good jests were like, yeah, you know, f- Macron, like, oh, f- Trump, you know, like they even like had a few yellow vests and like this big bright yellow jacket. They're like, oh, do you want this? It's so nice. You must love it. You know, we were really joking, like had, had seen like a lot of humor in this absurd situation of, you know, this, you know, young American girl kind of just arriving in the middle of the night and you know, no American. I, 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 I believe that no person from North America has ever been in this retention center. And so it was a very bizarre situation. All these cops were sort of like, you know, it, it clearly you will be, you know, you will be out of here tomorrow. You know, you'll, you'll go in front of the judge. They're going to let you go. Um, and they showed me around the sort of main building, like this is the social worker's office, the infirmary is over there, and this is where you get your soap, you know, and I honestly like still had no idea what was going on, and, and you know, they're, they're like, this is the office where you can go to and, you know, demand that you be deported, 
<laughs> so I was just like very kind of lost. I wasn't really sure if there was going to be like a judge. I was kind of under the impression still that I would meet me with, I would, you know, be meeting with a prosecutor and then would, would be, st- I, I was still assuming I was facing some kind of criminal charges. But yeah, I ended up, yeah, they, you know, they give you um, a blanket and uh, I was, I walked across this small yard through some fences into a small building where there are rooms um, where people sleep. There's like two, two beds in a room. Um, I was put in a cell with a young uh, 19, like a 19 year old from Bulgaria. Uh, and we chatted for a while, smoked some cigarettes and I went to sleep for a few hours. And around, we get wake, woken up in a, by a loudspeaker around seven in the morning to announce that brec- the breakfast hall, like the canteen is open. And, you know, I'd, I just slept in all my clothes. I just like had everything that I had with me on me. And I kind of like got up um, and tried to, yeah, just set out to figure out what was happening. Um, it took me until the afternoon to actually speak find a way to speak to a social worker. And in that time, I'd spoken to some of the other people who were detained there as well. Um, Everyone was massively confused on me being American. And most conversations my first day with any of the other inmates was was very like, okay, so you came to France to work. Like, what's, what's your, what's, what kind of job are you trying to have? What work were you doing? Like, you know, you, you want to get out of here so you can go back to your work. Oh, you, can, you can't find work in the United States, and that's why you're here. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I came from this place, you know. I, and I, I mean, I was definitely sort of laying low, uh, trying to explain that I was, I had angered the police and had landed here, basically, in a strange series of events. People at the retention center are people who are undocumented that come from all over the world and many who have been living in France for some time and others who have never actually been to France but were on their way to France and were controlled in an airport. Or again, like people who were controlled in the streets, controlled in a metro station, maybe some maybe had committed or were under suspicion of committing a crime and were sort of detained on the spot and then and then were you know don't don't have the right papers and there was only one person i encountered that had seemed to been arrested in you know a similar fashion to me um not protesting but um somehow angered the police because he was speaking with some stray dogs in a metro station and so he was detained and then didn't have papers um so most of these people are from either Countries colonized by France, like Algeria, Morocco, there's some people from Turkey, Eastern Europe, uh, Romania, there's some people from South America, Honduras, the Dominican Republic, uh, Costa Rica. So there's a strange mixture of, of, of people who are, are really in danger in their countries and do not want to go back. Um, maybe some of them are fleeing um, attempted, like people have had tried to murder them. A lot of them were fleeing domestic violence. There were some very young people, 17, 18, who came, or not all, not all the people are trying to stay in France either, but a lot of them are trying to stay in the EU. So a friend I made was trying to make it to Holland, for example, and got, got caught. Many, actually a couple of people, um, trying to make it to Holland, got stuck in France. And so 
their the retention center is sort of designed for people to stay up to two months in order to get their paperwork in order, their documents in order, so that they can stay in, in, in France and they can have it's in an administrative facility where they are, will go in front of administrative courts to argue, you know, either that they in fact do have documents, but they're locked in the apartment and they didn't have them and now they're detained and have no way of accessing those documents. They have need time to get that or you know, there's there's just some kind of mistake on their visa, like this wrong stamp and, and things like this, all the way up to, yeah, you know, people who had, in fact, been living um, undocumented in France maybe their entire lives. And so a very large array of people, in fact. And I was in the woman's side of the facility, but there is an, also an entire men's side. And we intersect basically while we are in line or loitering. So we, you know, we have two separate canteens, but on the way to the canteens, we can, we can kind of meet each other in this gated corridor outside. While we're waiting in line to get into the main building, we can also kind of loiter and um, discuss and sort of like have fleeting moments of joy. We'll continue to hear more from Chantal next week. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at kiteline at wfhb.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.